runasradio.com. You're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell and Greg Hughes. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 231 with guest Rhonda Layfield. Recorded Thursday, September 8, 2011. Run As Radio is produced each week by Quap Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow the boys on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. You're listening to Run As Radio. I've got Greg Hughes here with me. Hey, what's going on, man? Uh, plunking along, you know, fall conference season and all that good stuff. So we're getting right. settled in for the busy, busy times of the fall. But there are worse problems. Yeah, I, I can think of worse problems. <laughs> well, and by the time this show is published, uh, Build will have come and gone. But at the moment, I feel like we're sort of in the dark waiting for Microsoft Build. Right. Yeah, the all these new announcements. There's a lot of announcements coming from a lot of companies this fall. It's going to be an interesting technology season to see what's going on. Without a doubt. And, and in general, I think there's a lot of flux in uh, the way PCs are being used. I think we've gotten some really interesting shows together on changes in the way services are provided. So uh, right. more of the same, and I'm looking forward to being even more educated. But that's not what we're talking about today. Today, we, we get to talk to our favorite deployment queen, Rhonda Layfield's on the line. And you remember her from previous shows. Uh, oh, yeah. Spent some time working on nuclear power plants and uh, all of that secret stuff. But now she's living happily in the server OS world and our go-to lady for Microsoft Deployment Toolkit. And freshly back from Tech at Australia New Zealand, too. How are you, Rhonda? Great. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? So uh, how was Tech at Australia New Zealand this year? Because I stayed home. They were fantastic. They are just the nicest people ever. Um, pretty crazy down in New Zealand. They did this thing at lunch. I've never seen this at any tech ed. They were doing giveaways for the Connect boxes. Oh. And I was on the opposite side of where they were doing the announcing, and I heard it over the loudspeaker, and they were saying, okay, so for the next competition, what we want you to do is take your shirt off and write System Center Configuration <laughs> Manager across your chest. <laughs> and we will choose from those people who wins the Connect boxes. And I just... I was shocked. That's funny. I stood over That's there, and I'm great. like, dear God, I hope it's only men that do this, because I can't imagine. <laughs> and I had to go look. I walked around the corner, and there were these four guys who someone had written. I mean, there was, like, art on these men's chest. There was the little insignia for it, everything. I mean, they had really just drawn all over. Someone else had to have done it for them. And so these That's guys funny. had to have a dance-off with their shirts off. <laughs> Richard, this is not something you want to see, ever. Um, That's hilarious. <laughs> You probably wouldn't find that happening in Orlando very often, you know. No, no, I've never seen it anywhere else. This one guy decides he's going to outshine the other, so he grabs a hold of one of these, what he thought was a table, but it was really a cardboard pretend table. Oh, no. And it had all yeah. these laptops sitting on top of it. And he grabs it and jumps up on top of it and almost knocks all the laptops off. All these guys run over and grab the top of it, and he goes down. Huh. It was hysterical. I've never seen anything huh. like it, so... That's they were funny. pretty good, and the numbers were higher than last year. I think they hit about 2,800 in Australia, um, which I don't even know if they hit 2,000 last year. Yeah, I'm not sure, cool. but it certainly, uh, you know, thriving areas of technology down in, in the Southern Hemisphere, the busy, busy spots. Uh, we get lots of listeners from down there, so greetings from down under. You know, I'm originally from New Zealand, so certainly one of my favorite places to go, and 
Uh, glad it was a great show. Maybe we'll get back down there next year. It was really a lot of fun. And this is the first time I've gotten to spend any extra time down there. Oh, you did? So I, yeah, I went to Wellington. I, I, I was born in Wellington, Kansas, so I thought, a guy can see Wellington, New Zealand. So I took a plane down there just so the next day I could take the 12-and-a-half-hour train ride back to Auckland. And it was gorgeous. I saw volcanoes and waterfalls and just one of the prettiest trips ever. So I really enjoyed it. Yeah, that's North Island, New Zealand is something to see. It's, it's, a, it's a remarkable place. So what are we talking about today, Rhonda? What have you been up to? Well, you know, I've sat some talks down there by the world-renowned Michael Niehaus on MDT. And there's a new version coming out next year, and some of the changes are really, really cool. I think people are going to be very excited. I can't believe they're putting some of this functionality into one of their free tools. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about what's coming with MDT 2012. So this is the Deployment Toolkit? Is that what it stands for? Yeah, Microsoft Deployment Toolkit. Yep. It's, it's, a lot of people are still using the old Solution Accelerator Business Desktop Deployment Kit, the BDD, right. which I'm surprised. Yeah. I mean, that's like four versions ago now. But this oh. is the latest version of the old BDD. So what is new? What's new and great about it? Well, we're in beta one right now. So right now, not everything works. It was fun doing demos on a, on a beta product because I knew certain things weren't going to work. So I had to kind of let them know that before I did it. Um, beta two is going to come out around October time frame. And they're expecting to RTM right after Config Manager 2012 ships. So that's kind of when we can expect to see it next year. And one of the main things they're doing with it is they're trying to align it more closely with Config Manager 2012. Interesting, because um, Config Manager is not a free tool. No, it's not, but you have to integrate MDT 2012 into it to get zero-touch installation. So they're trying to make the interface look more like Config Manager. Interesting. So oh, the interface okay. itself is going to change a little bit. So even if you're doing MDT 2012 by itself without Config Manager, you're still going to get some additional functionality. And one of the cool things is we're going to be able to deploy VHD images now instead of just WIM images. So is that oh, actually cool. V2P deployment? I'm not sure if you would actually call it V2P. Um, you can create VHD images now. What's really weird is, you know, WIM images, you can only put one partition of information into a WIM image. Right. But then mm -hmm. you can store multiple WIM images inside a single WIM file. Okay. Well, that's not confusing at all, that right? Not, not confusing at all. What did you just say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, to make it even less confusing, you put WIM images inside a VHD. That's how you create your VHD images. Okay. Um, and this tool, MDT will now, instead of having to put a WIM inside a VHD, it will create your boot from VHD images by pointing MDT at a machine and telling it, sysprep that machine and create me a VHD image. Oh, uh, okay. Hmm. So it's a little bit easier now. And the nice thing with the VHDs is you can have multiple partitions or volumes inside one of those images. Right. right. So especially right, right. for servers, it's way nicer. Yeah, because it's normal to have multiple volumes set up in any given server. That's pretty much par for the course. So Absolutely. How are we doing it before that? Oh, you had to have multiple WIM images. Right. So you had to capture more than one image, and then you had to apply multiple images during your deployment. It's right. the only way to do it. So it you was. End, yeah, you end up writing much more complex scripts to apply each of those uh, different Absolutely. images. Absolutely. And now this is more packaged up. It's all in the VHD, and you simply point MDT to it and say, go ahead and deploy all of that. Yes. And what's even cooler, they're going to include something called the Image Factory, 
where you can create WIMS or VHDs, but the VHD can be deployed to a virtual machine manager, and you can use them as templates to create new VMs. So this starts to feel like hmm. better automation around doing self-service VM deployment. I'm, and I'm immediately going to the developer side of things where it's like, I need to stand up a set of servers to do some testing. Exactly. And how cool would it be within an hour to have four new servers built, brand new, from scratch, or desktop machines, especially for developers, mm-hmm. you know, to have a whole new environment built within an hour. They just take it off, go to lunch, come back. They've got a brand new environment, throw their applications out there, and they can test. Right. Run their yeah, tests. That's pretty cool. And then tear the whole, once the tests are done, tear the whole thing down and goes away. Exactly. Interesting. And along those lines, they're also supporting deploying thin PC which I didn't even know was an issue. Are you guys familiar with what thin PC is? I'd never heard of it. No, and, and you're the PE girl, too, so if anybody's going to know, it's you. Well, I've never heard of it. It's just a basic Windows 7. They've ripped out all kinds of components. You can't even install applications in it. It's only for, like, Citrix or terminal service clients. Oh, I see. So, the, the, I mean, and this is generally a movement I'm seeing all over the place now as we're getting more stuff in the cloud and a lot of terminal services work going on that we're able to run machines that all they've got is a browser and a terminal services client, nothing else. That's Remote it. applications, That's all that's yeah. in it. So who, this is a Microsoft version of the, uh, the OS? Yes, it is. It's another edition, one that I've never heard of. I wonder how many editions there are. Have you guys ever seen a list of how many editions of Windows 7 there are? There must be like 40 of them or something. Well, and you see a list, but you realize it's not complete because I've never seen this, you know, Windows embedded standard like, who, what are these? Like, I'm just searching, you know, you, you say it, I look for it, and like, here's these thin client products here that are considered Windows 7. Exactly. I'd love to see a complete list of all the additions on one site instead of having to go poke and dig around to find them on all these various different sites and different articles. No kidding. There must be a list somewhere. There's a POS ready for Windows 7, point of sales. Oh, Yeah. Like, specifically designed for the point-of-sale configuration, certain restrictions and settings and so forth. You know, this is one of the things that happened with with Windows 7 is that it really started in Vista, but we don't talk about that anymore. But the modularization of Windows made it a lot easier for them to pull out pieces and so forth. And I think it's created a larger proliferation of Windows versions. Yeah, it was pretty smart, wasn't it? Well, in one way, yes, and in another way, no. There are always consequences to these actions, right? Like Now we've got all these different versions. Like it make it crazy to try and support them all. Well, this next version of MDT is going to support, like I said, thin, deploying thin PCs right. and POS ready. Interesting. So, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. I mean, the fact that MDT is picking it up really makes it more visible to the general IT community. You no longer have to be in the embedded business to know about this. Right. Uh, and make thin client, to me, much more consumable in a, in a regular environment when you start looking at what you need to do that. I usually think about deploying thin client as an OEM product. I'll go buy it from Wise or HP pre-configured. I don't have to co- do any of it myself. Right, exactly. But w- the only reason you want to do this through MDT is because you want to actually deploy it onto hardware yourself. That's true. Huh. Or you want to get it ready. You want to get your VHDs ready. And then you can send those to the OEM, and the OEM can burn them on whatever hardware you purchase if you're getting, like, a bunch of them. Right. And a lot of companies are going to that. If they're not really highly secure companies, then a lot of them are doing that with OEMs now and have been for a while. 
Yeah, but it's an interesting idea because we've we've just sort of given up on controlling the nature of the environment on thing client, presuming it was all hard configured by the OEM and there's nothing you do about it. And you're now clearly demonstrating that's not true. That if I actually want to sit down and go over some certain configuration rules, possibly change some features around, certainly stuff like group policy and so forth, all that's going to be available to me if I want it inside of my thin client. Absolutely. And I think they've nailed the thin client down to the point where you can't do much with it. So they don't really care how you deal with your group policies or other configuration settings because the OS itself right. can only do certain things. Yeah, you can you can only get right. in so much trouble with that machine. I mean, that's one of the strengths right. of it, right? Uh, this is yeah. a, you know security. There's nothing more secure than a door that doesn't have a handle. Exactly, and that sounds like what these guys are. But there's some other really cool features. I got really excited about this. They're going to include the diagnosis and recovery tool set Dart. You know what Dart allows? I do not. Fill us in on Dart. It allows remote control of your target machines, even in the WinPE phase. Huh. So you can remotely control your deployments, which I think is so slick. Yeah, that's kind of cool. So during deployment, you're able to go in and alter things? or you know, make it- You can do anything you want. You can remote control the machine. You can bring up a remote control session with it. You can do an F8, get the command prompt, do anything you want if you're in the WinPE phase. Once you're in the OS phase, you can remote control the operating system itself with Dart. Hmm. Hmm. So is this, yeah, so is this really about, you know, remote deployments and things are one of those things where I find, you know, 90% of the time it just works and the 10% it's hell. And is this about compensating for that 10% primarily? It really is because if you run into some strange problem, and a lot of times in the branch offices, you've got somebody who you've just told them pixie boot that machine. Right. And it connects to a WDS server. It boots the MDT, Windows pre-installation environment. And then they're off and running with a deployment. That person doesn't know anything past press F12 when you see it on the screen. Right. And so at that point, somebody could remotely, if there was a problem with the deployment, they could remote into that machine and go take a look at the log files to try to figure out what the problem is, fix the issue, and then have them kick it off again or even restart the machine from the remote control session. And then it will pick up where it left off based on the log file information. What sort of failures do you find that get into that situation? Sometimes people put invalid credentials in to connect to the MDT share. Right. Um, trying to think of some other... Maybe the task sequence isn't set up properly within the MDT deployment workbench. So, yeah, part of this could be debugging MDT because you've got different hardware, different configuration requirements in that remote office. Yes. Because yeah, what jumped out to me is this is one of the ways you would find a hardware problem, that you've got a flaky hard drive or, you know, the secondary drive wasn't installed correctly or the NIC is wonky or the network configuration is a little off and you're able to get to the machine, but it's not right. You know, mm-hmm. one, of, one of the classic whammies I've run into is the DHCP configuration was wrong. There's no valid DNS. And so even though I can connect directly to that machine outbound, it can't load anything properly because it can't find anything because the DNS isn't working right. Exactly. And those are the kinds of problems that you would see. They'd, they'd show up. That would, DNS would show up, of course, as an authentication issue. Yeah. It wouldn't. Yeah. It, so some of the issues, they're kind of like um, cryptic. You have to figure out, well, if it's telling me that it's an authentication issue, you really have to go look at DNS and Active Directory, right. not just AD. Yeah, but when you first see um, an authentication issue, you think, okay, you put in the wrong credentials. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. So any, DNS, DNS issue masks as an authentication issue. Well, any, uh, as soon as you know what the whole problem is, it makes the error message makes perfect sense. It just makes no sense before you know what the whole problem is. Of course. This is why they pay us the big bucks. 
What fun would troubleshooting be if you knew? If we actually had the <laughs> correct answers, to take all the fun out of it. I know. But I think most people out there today, they look at authentication issues 90% of the time, has nothing to do with Active Directory. Right. Yeah, well, or, you know, the classic one for me, I still, I, this is one of those checklist items whenever we're dealing with some kind of thing that looks like an AD issue is, are the clocks in sync? Oh, absolutely. Are the clock, yep. Yeah. Are the clocks in sync or is the switch port configured to auto-negotiate its full duplex or half duplex and all that kind of stuff on the Cisco switch? Yeah. The two absolutely. things that kill, kill, that kill you every time. And, you know, that's something I don't ever see anymore. Nobody does basic networking or basic TCPIP sessions anywhere. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that people have gotten away from it. And the new newbies who are in the industry, they don't have a clue what an IP address is or what the subnet mask has to do with it or even what full duplex has to do with networking. Yeah. I mean, they just, everybody's skipping the basics. That might be an interesting show topic in and of itself, you know. But nobody will pick it. Nobody will choose it. Yeah, at a conference, yeah. it's tough to get that session bought. But uh, it sounds like a run as we ought to do. The fundamentals of IP once again. You know, we, yeah, that we, would be a good one to we do. We all take I, it for well, granted. I guess, or e- either that, or we can simply we can accept it for what it is and say that there's a lot of job security in all of us old guys that are you know, <laughs> those those of you that are still consultants. That, like, uh, there's like plenty that. of work to be done. Well, and, I, I, and I'm always worrying about IPv6 here because, you know, bit by bit, this is actually going to happen and we're going to have to go back and exercise our networking chops in a big way. Yeah, I wish it would have happened by now. There's so much goodness in IPv6 to be had. Says the security guy. Really the expanded address space. Yeah, as a security guy, IPv6 is, is very interesting, but it's not simple. No. That's for sure. That's something that has to be learned. There's just no way around that. Well, we're on a digression, so let me give you one more digression that will amuse you. Our local ISP uh, here in Vancouver is now offering 100 megabit download speeds off of a cable modem. Wow. And wow. Uh, and it's a business service. 100 meg down, 5 meg up. And uh, I'm talking, you know, I've got it all set up for me. I've got a pretty good idea what the problem is because my, my immediate reaction is, oh, crap. Most routers top out at 100 megabit and probably don't even switch at that speed. They probably switch at 50. Right. So uh, I, I order the high-end service because, you know, the correct amount of bandwidth is always more. And then... Uh, do some tweaky tuning, get it up to close. I think I managed to get about 75 out of my router. I'm going to have to get a new one because it's just about overwhelmed. And I'm having a conversation with their tier three guy. And he says, everybody orders the 100 is frustrated. They can't get the speed out of it. And I'm like, dude, it's the router. It's the router, yeah. Yeah, but they're all 100 megabit. Yeah, but they don't switch at 100 megabit, kiddo. Like, they, it's the difference between what the port says and what the hardware can actually do. Theoretical right. capacity, yeah. <laughs> Well, as long as we're going down this road, I want to mention one thing. I did a talk in New Zealand on user profiles because every time I do a deployment talk somewhere, everyone comes up and says, hey, what's the deal with user profiles in Windows 7 because they're so flaky. Hmm. And so I finally pitched a talk on it because I thought I've got to go make myself learn this. So, But define flaky for us. What, what do we mean when we say you Windows 7 profiles are flaky? Well, trying to set your default user profile is close to impossible now. You've got to do it in WSIM scripts, hmm. yeah. Windows System Image Manager scripts, and that is not pretty. That is one tool that uh, you open it and you look at it and you're like, I have no idea where to start, and you just close yeah. it down because it's not intuitive at all. And I ask every session I do if it has anything to do with WSIM. I always ask people, how many of you guys are using WSIM? 
And out of 200 people, I'll get like three people to raise their hand. And then I'll ask, how many of you opened it, looked at it, had no idea what to do with it, and closed it? And I'll get 25% of the room. Because that's the same thing I did. Right. Yeah, just too terrifying to use. And, and so th- is this actually related to, to Deployment Toolkit? This is about pushing a user profile into an image? Exactly. So if you want to set your default user profile settings, mm-hmm. how do you do that? Well, you have to do it with a WSIM script and attach it to your sysprep command. Okay. When you sysprep the machine and shut it down to save those settings, but not all the settings get saved. And Microsoft has not and has told me they will not document what gets wiped clean and what gets saved. So it's kind of like shooting in the dark. You have no idea what you're going to get. Now, is there another way to come at this problem entirely? Like, can't I go to a new... Are you talking about creating new user profiles or taking existing ones and putting them on new hardware? Taking an existing default user profile right. and deploying that out to okay. all of your machines. Now, th- but this is, a, this is not an individual's profile. This is a default profile, a sort of generic all-user profile. Correct. Okay. So that everyone who logs onto the machine will get the same user profiles to start with, the same settings, desktop, wallpaper, things like that. Can I do this through group policy now instead? You can do it through group policy, but a lot of companies have problems with clients that they might not join the domain for a few days. Right. I see this all the time. Or their machine, I mean, they just don't have physical connection to the headquartered office in order to get group policies. Yeah, it's the salesman, right? The guy on a laptop roving, he's just started, and he's not going to be in the office on the first day and drive the IT guy wild. Yeah, exactly. And so you want to be able to push that configuration set in the image and and get it out there. And it's just, it sounds very difficult. It is, it is difficult. And there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through to get it to work. Now, and that's one of the big issues that people are having is the way we used to do it, mm-hmm. which was just to copy over the default, you know, log on as an administrator, set up your profile, and then copy that one for everyone to use. Right. That was easy. It was a piece of cake. Well, that doesn't work any longer. Interesting. Yeah, because that's so, what exa- I think you just pick up the all users folder off that machine and use and ship that around. Mm-hmm. You would think it would be that easy, but yeah. no, no, not any longer. It's not. Huh. And plus, they've come out with not just mandatory profiles, but there's something called super mandatory profiles now. Have you guys heard of that? No. What this is a super nope. mandatory profile? It sounds scary though. <laughs> it is scary. So the mandatory profiles are just you can't change anything. The users, they get the same desktop settings every time they log on to a machine. Even right. if they make changes, right. they log off, they don't get saved. So it's almost like so kiosk mode. Yeah, it's similar to that. So the super mandatory is a mandatory profile, but when you're doing roaming, you have to do roaming with super mandatory. And if the client machine cannot access the server where the super mandatory profile resides, mm-hmm. you do not get logged on. Oh, so it'll actually this will keep mm. the guy off the machine entirely. Yeah, so it's more of a security issue. Interesting. Right, so it ensures that you definitely have all of your... So in other words, if it can't talk to it to get updates or to find out if policy has changed, then you just don't allow it to be used. Exactly. We're on a normal mandatory profile. If you can't access the server where it lives, you'll get a temporary profile created. And then when you log off that machine, it gets deleted. I kind of like that super mandatory profile idea from a security perspective. That... That could be pretty useful in some environments. I was surprised after uh, after I presented the super mandatory. I asked, like, how many of you are interested in the super mandatory profile? And out of about in that room, I had about three hundred people. And this is in New Zealand, mm-hmm. where I don't even know if they had fifteen hundred people. And this user profile session brought in like three hundred people. I couldn't believe how packed the room was. Sure, 
Wow. And I had about 50 people raise their hand. They were interested in a super mandatory. I was really surprised. Yeah, and that sounds like a high security environment, government and, uh, you know, related areas where you need fairly significant security. Or where you have high levels of compliance, you know, mm-hmm. requirements that require a high level of security or and financial or and health. Sure. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, I think you've st- we, we may have gone off subject here. I know we talked about MDT of 2012 at the beginning, but I'm, you, I'm fascinated, Rhonda, that you, you're getting a lot of traction in what you're really talking about fundamental subjects and how they've changed in the later versions of the OS. Because exactly. I had no, I've, I've done the copy all user thing for years and I had no idea it broke in Win 7. It shows that I'm not doing a lot of Win 7 deployments these days. Well, and it's always, it's always a storage point. On every deployment talk that I do, there's always one person. As soon as one person brings up the topic, there's everyone else jumps on board. Right. Well, it's an excuse not to use MDT. You know, in my mind, they, this is one of those things where we, we have too many tools. We're struggling on which ones to use. I know you're a huge advocate of MDT. Everybody I've talked to who's really using it adores it. It's a much better way to do deployment. But when you're going through your list of requirements, one of them are these default profiles. And the fact that it would stumble on that or make that awkward is a reason to say, oh, good. I don't have to learn that. I'm going to stick with what I'm doing, even though in many ways it's inferior. Right. That's true, yeah. And that's why I'm working on putting together articles now on user profiles and trying to get that information out through newsletters from my website. Mm-hmm. And so, for folks that are using SCCM, but maybe you're not using MDT, what message would you want to make sure they get? Well, if they're using SCCM and they're doing zero-touch installations, they have no choice. They must use MDT as mm-hmm. well. Those two products must be integrated together or they're not doing zero-touch installations. Right. Well, and I, and I find that Microsoft is doing this more and more where they're making their free tool an essential part of a paid tool. And I wonder why. Well... Why don't they just put the functionality right into Config Manager? I'm with you, but, you know, there's an upside to the folks who don't want to buy the pay tool, which is that the free tool is really quite good and going to be maintained because a pay tool depends on it. Like, I think from a customer perspective, that actually benefits us. I don't know that it benefits Microsoft, but it certainly benefits us. Well, it helps people to roll out Windows 7. So if you don't look at the cost of the tool, Microsoft's not making any money on MDT itself. Right. But people purchasing Windows 7, they're making money off that. Well, they always, they're always getting their license one way or the other. And I don't begrudge Microsoft's money. Generally speaking, they've, they help us get more stuff done. And, and I'm actually a big fan of the System Center products. I hope they'll actually come yeah. down in price and more people will use them because they're, they're good tools. They, they make a better environment without a doubt. Uh, they're fantastic tools. But people don't, they don't take the time to go take a class on it. Yeah. Config Manager is not Word. You don't install it and just learn it as you go. You can down the whole network, and I have seen people down their networks yep. from it, adding all the agents at one time on a Monday morning. And, I mean, the network bandwidth just, bam, kills it. Mm-hmm. So people have to take the time to go take a class, learn what the product can do, learn what you should do, how you should stage your deployments of Config Manager, and really understand the processes behind it and the network traffic that's mm-hmm. driven by config manager, or you could really yeah. cause a lot of problems. Well, in SCCM, I do think it's the starting point, but I don't think you get your biggest bang for your buck out of uh, System Center until you get to Ops Man. Says the guy who's in the business of making websites run fast, and of course cares a lot about how well do, can we instrument our production environment and know where the problems are before they happen. Mm-hmm. Right. 
But, you know, that to me is like, I need SCCM in place so that I can get to Ops Man and that gives me better instrumentation. So I start fixing, you know, I hate whenever the CTO or, or any of my users phone me to tell me about a problem that I didn't know about. I want my system to tell me what the problem is before anybody calls. Right, and Definitely. give you a chance to fix it before anybody even notices it. Exactly. You know, it's embarrassing to actually run out of disk space. There's no excuse. The tool's got to tell us, hey, you know, you're right. down to 15% disk space and this rate of consumption, you'll be out in two weeks, and you've got time to do something about it. Exactly. I'm going to bring you back to MVT for a second because okay. I have more, more good information. You're going to be able to monitor your clients during the deployment now from within the deployment workbench. So as installations are undergoing? Yeah. So you'll be able to see who's doing what, at what percentage are they done, that kind of information. So it'll be kind of neat to have some monitoring of any type within the deployment workbench. Right now we just deploy a client and we sit at the client and watch it, wait for it to finish. Right. Yeah, how many times have you run done a ping-t dash just to wait to see when it reboots and reconnects to the network? Absolutely. <laughs> there's, no, there's no other way to do it. So now if a problem does occur midstream during a deployment, maybe you can, you'll be able to see it and keep an eye on everything at one time. Yeah. Well, that and we're suckers yeah. for dashboards. Don't you just love watching the gauges move? <laughs> <laughs> dashboards for the sake of dashboards. There you go. I just want to, yeah, you know, watch the little spinning ball go. Something is happening one way or the other. And do, do you actually see, I think that's going to be important when you have a mass deployment scenario. I'm, I'm, I'm doing 10 machines at once and I want to know where they're at. Right. And also, you want to know which one's slowing everybody else down if you're doing multicast, which you can see that in WDS anyway, but why do you right. need to open another tool for right. your monitoring? I just want to do it all in one tool. And is there really a circumstance where a particular machine is going to impair the, the, the rest of the installation? What happens there? Oh, my goodness, yes. In multicast traffic, mm-hmm. um, especially on Server 2008, where you only have one stream of multicast traffic, right. the slowest mm-hmm. client will dictate the speed of everybody else. Interesting. So right. if you have a, right. a router or a switch that's misbehaving, and you got a client sitting behind that guy doing the deployment, that switch is going to cause everybody else to slow down yeah. the deployment. Or a bad nick yeah. in the machine, too. Same thing, right? Exactly. Here's one yeah. machine that's at, asking, re-asking for every packet or every other packet, and you pull that machine out, the other nine will be done in no time, and then you can deal with the one later. Yep. Interesting truism. Well, I've saved the best for last. Okay, hit me. Are you guys familiar with the Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, UEFI? Okay, now you're just making things up, Rhonda. Uh-uh, I'm not. This is cool. Eufy. Um It's not new. It's the Eufy, yeah. Eufy. <laughs> oh, I like that. Unified. Extensible what? Firmware Interface, Eufy. All right. You know I'm going to get so on stage at some have... point and call it a roofie. <laughs> 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 well, cl- clearly we have no idea what you're talking about, yeah. and we're excited to hear what it is. <laughs> it's actually it's Intel's replacement for the PC BIOS. It's been out for a while now, but not all hardware supported it. Most new hardware supports uh, okay. it now, unless they're cleaning out the back room and right. selling the old machines as new. Interesting. Gotcha. One of the things it does for us, it offers um, GUID partition table support. You know the old master boot record partition tables? Yep. You, were, you could only have like four partitions, either four primaries or three primary, one extended, and then break that guy up into logicals. Yep. So you were, you were limited by the number of partitions you could have and also the size of your partition sizes. It only supported up to 2.19 terabytes. Only. Only. Listen to what GPT supports. This is cool. 9.4 zettabytes. That's a big number. 
cool. So one zettabyte is a billion terabytes. Yes. <laughs> so that's a big number. Wow. And it also supports up to 128 volumes instead of just the four. MBR specification is ancient, right? I mean, that goes back it to... It really is. ...to, you know, Dave Cutler and the early versions of uh, NTFS and all. It's really old stuff. Right? It is. So old, it's when, when would we ever need more than four or five terabytes of, of space, right? So... Yeah, we're not talking laptops, I don't think. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Wouldn't that be but, cool? Yeah. There terab- was a day when one gigabyte of storage space was something that people said... There's just no way. Yeah, it's an astonishing yeah. amount of storage. Yeah, and then it was outrageously expensive when it came out. So uh, MDT now works in, with UFI for configuring machines at the at the bare bones level. It does, but here this is the cool part: is now UFI, since we're calling it that, supports 4K sector sizes. So, see, in the old days, the hard drives. It was legacy support, yep. 512 byte physical sectors. Mm-hmm. The operating right. system would read, like your virtual memory pages and the file systems like NTFS, would mm-hmm. read it in 4K block sizes. Right, right. So the problem that you had is hardware is 512, operating yep. systems are 4K, and it caused right. something called a misalignment. What we ended up seeing was performance was degraded because it had to go through right. all these conversions and it was like missing information. And it has to jump to the next one and read a big block, and then it would have empty blocks, empty right. information at the end. So we ended up with misalignments and degraded performance. Right. It takes a few. The whole idea here is it's supposed to be able to pick up those 512K sectors in a sequence to complete a 4K block, and it doesn't always do that, and you end up with extra spins to do that. It's really low-level stuff, but you know these things add up. It really does. And the cool thing is now UFI supports... 4K sector sizes. Right. So the disk is written so to the same format. And, yeah, exactly. So it should speed things up. The only caveat there is uh, 4K sector sizes are not supported for XP. Just in case anybody's curious, uh, that's still not supported. <laughs> right. But anything Vista or later would be. Interesting. And honestly, if anybody expects something new to be supported on XP, it's yeah. probably time to come to reality. Yeah, you're a little diluted. Yeah. Without a doubt. That ship is still. <clears throat> wait, let me see. We have... That was... <laughs> how many days? 942 days to the end of support. <laughs> you got, a, got it on a big sign on your in your room there, Rhonda? Oh, boy. I have a gadget. Nice. <laughs> a little Microsoft gadget for end of support for XP. <laughs> the problem is that that 512-byte configuration is default. Correct. Because it's the most compatible configuration. So you got to really think about making these changes, like how many folks that are building deployments are thinking about, hey, I want to change the sector size on the disk? Depends on how many I get to talk to. (laughs) You're on a campaign. I get that. (laughs) Yeah, we ought to squeeze as much performance out of these machines as we can. And if this is something that can really help us speed things up, it's just going to make Windows 7 look even better to management. You know, and I wonder if it's one of the things that's making SSD stand out so much is that that whole issue disappears. I mean, I know SSDs are inherently faster than spinning media, but it, this is one of those issues that would further impair disk performance, that if we just fix the sector size, we might get enough performance that you don't have to demand an SSD in every machine. Are there any numbers that tell us what the real difference is if you do go with the 4K size? I haven't seen any benchmarking tests yet. That would be that'd be really interesting to see. It would be. Very interesting idea. Well, guys, I think we've gone a little long and had a good time doing it. 
But I'm not good complaining. Good conversation. Yeah, good conversation. Definitely. Rhonda, thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks, Rhonda. Good to talk to you again. Well, thanks for having me, guys. And we'll see you next week on Run As Radio.